0: It's the Airhead, 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems. State-of-the-art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And boxer2valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, we're back at it again. Hello everyone. On the program this week, a conversation with Kent Saunier at GMD CompuTrack in Fairmount, Georgia. Now. I can hear the gears turning out there. Who? What is this? In short, Kent and GMD CompuTrack specialize in frame alignment and frame repair services. They're also a full-service shop providing suspension service as well. More on all this in a little bit. William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve is back with us for a discussion on the monolever and paralever 247s. Now, let's take a dip into the mailbox for a note we got from Wes in New Hampshire. Wes is a Marine Corps vet and worked as an aircraft mechanic and crew chief on the MV-22 Osprey. Very impressive credentials there, Wes. He tells us a buddy of his had ar 80 rt and with his background in aircraft mechanics, he developed an appreciation for the 247 engine. Fast forward a few years, Wes now has two, that's right, two R65s in his garage. Wes is also among the under 40 demographic that is keeping the enjoyment and tradition of the 247 Airhead alive. So we're glad to hear this. Thanks for listening and riding, Wes. Keep it up. Raw is glad to hear from listeners. Drop us a line anytime with whatever is on your mind. Airheads with an S airheads247 at hotmail.com. A few bits of news and notes before we go any further. The GoFundMe for Hans Muth is still up and running. We've got a link to the page in the about section of this program with more information. And just a reminder, where would we be without Hans and his innovations and imprint on the 247? So please consider checking out the page and making a donation. Also, Brooke Reams' R80ST charity auction is up and running. Many of you will recall our chat with Brooke about this bike and build a little earlier this year. It's a real stunner. And those of you who are familiar with Brooke's YouTube page and website know his meticulous attention to detail. The bike is amazing, and the funds from the auction go to a great cause. That's the Motorcycle Relief Project. Again, we'll provide a link in the about section of this program for more information. Okay, Kent Saunier is our guest this week and I had a need for his services recently and man, was I glad to have him around. Pictures of the bike and the repair process we're discussing in this episode are available for perusal on ADV Rider, that's Adventure Rider. Check the airhead section there and search 1977 R100S Refresh. We'll pop a link to that thread here as well. So off we go to Fairmount, Georgia, on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, we're on the line with Kent Saunier at GMD CompuTrack. And Kent, first thing I want to ask you, uh, your last name, Saunier, what's the the origin uh, behind that?
1: It's French-Cajun.
0: That's exactly what I was thinking. Yep. And so you still have relatives, family, friends down in that neck of the woods, or what?
1: Yep, all over Louisiana.
0: Oh, man. So if I were to go down there on a Saturday night, uh, maybe go to a little bar or club out in the bayou somewhere, might I run into a crazy Sonia somewhere?
1: I don't know about the crazy part but it's, it's a good possibility yeah <laughs> okay yeah. fair enough you say there's a couple, uh, a couple hundred families with that name
0: all right okay any musicians in the in the family well uh, Joel Sonier.
1: it's a different spelling but they say it's from a from the same name apparently somewhere along the line some kid went to his first day of Elementary school and didn't know how to spell their name, so the teacher changed it inadvertently. So, so uh, my name is spelled S O I G N I E R, and there's a, another half of the family is diverted off, and it's S O N N I E R.
0: Okay, yeah, I could see that. Well, That's... I don't
1: know. I I don't know which way it went. I don't know which was the original and which was the 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 teacher's. Conversion, but that's the that's the legend anyway. So.
0: Yeah, I'd say the spelling you use seems more legit as an original one, and the latter seems to be more of uh, the, the the change spelling, a- as it I, were. I, well, the last I thing like- on last thing on this, I don't want to uh, go on too long about this. I'm just curious, yeah. what are some of the let's call them variations, people say to you on your last name if they're not sure how to pronounce it? Oh, good grief.
1: Sogner, Sogneer,
0: Uh
1: <laughs> It goes on.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Well, I, I'm going to pat myself on the back and say when I uh, first met you and went down there, I had a feeling... That's what it was, having been down to Louisiana a bunch of times and and whatnot. So, okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, so time to get on to what we're really on the phone about today, and that's GMD CompuTrack. So let's just do a little 101. What exactly is GMD CompuTrack?
1: Okay. Uh, GMD is a three-dimensional coordinate measurement system that when we put a motorcycle in front of it and, and, and do the measurement process, we get a, a three-dimensional understanding of the bike's alignment and its geometry. GMD is the initials for Greg McDonald, who was the, the mastermind behind this. He's based in Sydney, Australia. He, uh, he worked on software and hardware Iterations for ten years before you came down with the, the the result of what we use now.
0: And um, and, and when was that? And when was that first brought to market, so to speak? Well,
1: we bought the second one in the world, um, the, and the first one that was licensed for retail use. The first one was for in-house use only by Moriwaki uh, in Japan, a little bit of brief story on that. Uh, Mr. Moriwaki is married to Pops Yoshimura's daughter, and uh, um, Greg presented the technology to them. And Pops Yoshimura was so impressed with it, he stroked the check for his daughter to put it into their company. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They they use it to measure their in house. They they build the uh Formula race bikes. They use the currently they're using the Honda CRF 250 platform uh, motorcycle um, uh, engine. I'm sorry, and uh, for a little Grand Prix bike, nope. it's kind of like an RS 125 Honda, but it uses a four stroke power. So,
0: well, that's impressive that they decided to use that on the front end in the manufacturing process because as we'll talk yeah. about a little bit later. This really yeah. uh, was never used, uh, at least stateside or any, many other places for that example. In fact, I remember one of the things you were telling me when I brought my bike down uh, for alignment and repair was it'll probably be better than it was from the factory. So, all right. So let's get back to this, though. Greg McDonald, uh, Australian. This uh, system was, uh, again, inv- I'm just curious, what year was it sort of? brought to market and, and people started becoming aware of it.
1: I don't, I I think the Moriwaki unit was sold right before, within months before I called Greg, I read an article in the front page of road racing world, uh, magazine and, uh, Greg McDonald was my first ever long distance overseas phone call that I ever made. Um, and we talked about it for about 40 minutes before we got down to, well, how much is this thing? <laughs> and when, when he told me, I, uh, I, I apologize, I didn't mean to waste your time, I don't have that kind of money. It's been nice talking to you, and uh, good luck with it. So about a week later, he called me back and said he had had six phone calls in the article. Some of those people had money to pay him cash for the price that he was asking for it. Uh, but he uh, he liked our conversation. I had an existing business and uh, a clientele, and we were a very successful road race based uh, service. And uh, he called me back and asked me if 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 he would finance half of it, could I come up with the other half? And I mm. said, yes. Yeah and I had no idea where I was going to come up with the money <laughs> but but uh I I beat the bushes and we found it uh, I ended up getting it from my father he stepped up and and um, loaned me the money to get
0: started with it so this was what 85 90 95 what year I'm sorry 1993 93 okay, okay. all right yeah so you so the my first impression on on this Uh, And I remember you telling telling me the story when you were down there. Um, My first impression, though, was, boy, you really must have been blown away and impressed by uh, by what uh, Greg had come up with. And you, I guess, you had a vision or saw how this could turn into a business for you. So, what were some of your just initial thoughts when uh, when you were having that conversation? And obviously. Greg heard that in your voice too as he wanted uh, to get back uh, you get back to you and have you uh, take this further. What what were your initial thoughts on it?
1: Well, my initial thought was when I was hanging on to one end of that check and Greg was hanging on to the other end of that check, <laughs> my thought was I hope what you're telling me is true. <laughs> uh, and, and it turned out that it was all true. Um, yeah, I was a straight shooter, ne- you never never made up anything and, and the uh, potential that he explained that the machine had was was all very real. So, um, and other than that, I I didn't know where it could go. I just knew that it had great potential. And you know, it, it uh, we start with straightening frames for that foundation, and then we move into geometry stuff, and and then that ties into suspension settings, et cetera, and and it's all a package. But having the the Ability to analyze a bike's alignment and its geometry quickly, and extremely accurately, uh, has proven to be very, very powerful.
0: Yeah, and what were you doing motorcycle-wise at the time? Were you, I guess, you were racing? Then already you had a speed shop, a sport shop. What was going on uh, at that time in the mid-90s when you when you first purchased it?
1: Okay. Well, coming up to that point, uh, we had a company called Cycle Nuts and Bolts Racing, and it was in uh, Clarkston, Georgia, and uh, which is about a mile outside of the 285 bypass around Atlanta. Actually, I came to work there because the lead mechanic, his name was Vic Fasola, he was on the road with Scott Russell tuning for him, tuning his Yoshimura Supersport bikes. And uh, so that opened up a void that the business that, that I moved into there um, needed a needed a mechanic, so I took that spot and I was immediately exposed to all kinds of racers uh, like Scott Russell and Jamie James and and golly the list goes on and on with uh, a bunch of star racers um, a lot of, a lot of people passed through that shop. Aaron Slight came through that shop one day from Australia Um so, anyway, we, I ended up buying the Dynajet Dyno, one of the, the – I, I think we bought the 98 one that was ever built. Um, and so we were building motors, building race bikes. We had no idea what we did not know about chassis setups. Uh, but I thought that CompuTrack would fill that void, and it absolutely did. So, now? so we, yeah, we were just doing, doing uh, race prep, race repairs. And street bike work, and you know, we, so we had it, we had it going
0: on there. Okay, and you were, were you also riding and and racing yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've uh, been around racing since the early seventies, and uh, started with motocross and hair scrambles, and uh, d- dabbled in flat track racing. I rode observed trials for a while, and. I I would be outside the fence at Daytona with my fingers in the chain link fence looking in, going, <laughs> How do I get in there? <laughs> and and uh le- later on I wanted to know how the hell I could get out of there. So <laughs> That's funny. It became all consuming, but but we've we've been very successful with it. My um starting with cycle nuts and bolts and then into G M D Contract, uh we have I haven't tried to make a list lately, but last time we did, we've had thousands of race customers who won championships, races uh, at the regional level and national level, and some at the world level.
0: What you're doing there currently, and when I say currently, let's just say that means, I don't know, the past five, five years or so. Is it a combination of building... Tuning, race bikes, suspension, and frame repair—like something you did for me—or how wh- over the past five years, sort of. What is the breakdown in the in the work you do?
1: Okay, going back to a little bit farther than that. Yeah, up to, from from 1993 up until 2007, when the economy tanked on us, um, we were dedicated chassis specialists meaning I didn't do carburetor cleanings or tire mounting or general repair of any kind. We had uh, half a dozen mechanics working for us, measuring and straightening bikes and building suspension. Um, and then uh, when the economy tanked, uh, that kind of dried up a bit. I mean, it, it really fell off. So we, I, in order to survive, we started uh, doing more general repair, cleaning carburetors, mounting tires, doing tune-ups, a little bit of engine work here and there, and just kind of whatever would come along to keep the doors open. Now, uh, in the last five years or, or more, um, I'm, 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 I've got a couple of people at the shop that do the general repair stuff, and I just kind of stay out of it. I'm very focused on um, getting the uh, the chassis side of things, um, keeping paying attention to that and, and really focusing on that myself.
0: Yeah, I can remember when I was down there, and I guess this was well over a year ago now. But uh, you had a Harley Bagger race bike, which I, you know, I'm not much into the racing. I kind of heard a little bit about what those were, uh, and then yeah. when I when I saw it on the lift, uh, okay, now now I I understand. I don't I don't know why, but I understand what it is.
1: Well. Yeah, that that's been a um, quite a boon to the crowds at uh, at the road races, professional road races, the Moto America rounds, where the bagger races are, are highlighted. Uh, that really brings out another uh, segment of the population that sure. to come to the road. Yeah, and it's been very successful. I understand they've actually invited it to come do some of the. Uh, the British Superbike rounds, or something like that, they're hmm. going to take the baggers. England, uh, it's quite a spectacle. It really is. Those guys, um, they're not just playing around. They're racing hard, hmm. and they're a bunch of money on the line.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. The factories
1: are involved. Right. Indian and Harley, especially.
0: So, so. when uh, when it come when so when I I brought my uh, seventy seven BMW down, and we'll talk get a little bit more into that here in a minute and i had found out about you through uh somebody else on uh adventure rider who's in your area in your neck of the woods in the greater let's just call it atlanta area who had a bike uh unceremoniously toppled over by a a 18-wheeler i think it was oh yeah and i had seen i think some pictures uh jenna is her name hardware girls or handle on adventure rider and just sort of in passing had seen uh the pictures and her story and post on uh, on bringing her bike there and how you got it all dialed in was it doing the frame repair for sort of uh joe q customer uh what i'm just curious is that a big part of your business small part of your business uh are you still busy doing that people are calling you up and just saying hey I think my, you know, my bike was in an accident or I got this bike cheap. Uh, what what part of that takes up uh, shop time for you? Spare tubes. Yep, got them. Spare starter relay and clutch cable. Check-a-rooney. These are just some of the things on your checklist you may have when preparing for a road trip on your 247. Two things you may not have considered the BMW MOA Anonymous book, and the MOA's roadside assistance plan. No matter how well you and your bike are prepared, yep, the unexpected can happen. The BMW MOA Anonymous book, it's one of the most confidence-inspiring items I pack when traveling. It's full of contact information for MOA members across the U.S. and internationally who can offer assistance in the event of a breakdown or Provide a tip on where to grab a good sandwich or catch a live band. I've used the anonymous book on a few occasions over the years. The result? Always the same. Friendly assistance with a repair and a great story to tell down the road. Conversely, I've hosted and assisted fellow riders over the years, and the same applies. Always a fun story and the feeling of satisfaction when helping someone in need. Now, roadside assistance plans. These start at $20 a year for the basic and top out at just over $60 a year for the Platinum Roadside and Tire Hazard Protection Plan. That includes 100 miles of free towing, up to four times a year, and two tire replacements each year, up to 250 bucks for each tire. The Platinum Package covers up to three bikes, regardless of the brand or year. As with any offer, there are details and conditions here, so be sure to check out more on this on the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America website under the Resources tab. So next time you've got a long road trip planned, yes, pack your spares and make sure your bike is tuned and ready to go and for that extra peace of mind, have your MOA Anonymous book and roadside assistance plan ready as well. Thanks to everyone at the BMW MOA for their support of our program. And a reminder, you can see the latest installment of the 247 Survivor Series in the December edition of the BMW MOA Owner's News. Now back to our chat with Kent Sonnier at GMD CompuTrack in Fairmount, Georgia. I think my, you know, my bike was in an accident or I got this bike cheap. Uh, What what part of that takes up uh, shop time for you?
1: Well, um, a huge part. That's the biggest part of our business.
0: Wow. Is, okay.
1: Yeah, people that call us up, and for instance, I got a new model, such and such. It's got four hundred miles on it, and it pulls hmm. to the left or right. And I've gone back to the dealer, and they kind of blew me off. And 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 the reason for that is the, the they don't have a way to analyze it. They don't okay. have a way to assess customer complaints, and we measured that particular bike, the one I'm referring to here, was a a brand new very expensive motorcycle a guy called me from Washington State and he had 400 miles on the bike and um, it pulled badly so he had the bike shipped to near Atlanta, Georgia where we're we're located, and we measured the bike that particular bike proved to be nice and straight, except the rear wheel aiming by the hash marks on the swing arm was wrong. When this guy had taken it back to the dealership, I can see where they very carefully matched the hash marks on the swing arm with (laughs) the axle aiming. You BMW guys may not know about that. but uh, (laughs)
0: That's true. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So true. Yeah. But... um, <laughs> yeah they
1: they did what they knew how to do, meaning they went through and inflated the tires, they went through and checked the steering head bearings and the the torque and tightness of everything and they they aligned the wheel by the hash marks on the swing arm, which were telling lies when we analyzed the frame, we realized that the frame is straight, the swing arm is not twisted, the front end, the steering meaning the triple clamps and the forks and all that stuff is not twisted. The back wheel was not aimed at the front wheel because the hash marks at the chain adjusters were not telling the truth. Hmm. When we fixed it, um, they were about a little over a half an increment off. But now that the customer knows that, we, we showed him how to deal with that, and we shipped the bike back to him in, in Washington State, and uh, he's very happy with it. Wow.
0: Yeah, that's one of those things. If I can imagine part of what he went through. Uh, either the dealer or himself, because I sort of went through that a little bit, too, with my issue. It can be frustrating to the home mechanic or the new bike owner, not knowing exactly what to look for. And something like that, the hash marks on the chain adjuster, that's just something you take for granted.
1: That's right. And And people also presume that their brand new motorcycle is nice and straight. Yeah. And some of them are. But some of them are not. And I, if, if we measured 10 of the same motorcycle models, 10 in a row, never crashed, two of them would be, one or two of them would be nice and very well aligned. One or two of them would be at the other end of the scale, problematic, and, uh, you know, has some issues. Everything else falls in between somewhere. But, but back to your question, we our, our, um, we do a lot of, analysis of alignment and, and, and geometry to solve handling problems quite often on bikes that have
0: never been crashed. Yeah, interesting. And so why, why is that? Uh, so uh, uh, pick any brand, whatever it is, brand X, yeah. their yeah. frames are uh, prepared in the factory, especially these days, newer bikes, they're all computer welded, I would imagine, um yeah, robot. Yeah, and so yeah. do what? What do you know about what goes on with frame construction, uh, factory-wise? What kind of checks are they doing, if any, uh, that maybe could have avoided that, or is it just sort of inevitable of the modern process? Or even if we go back to the 70s, how BMW or other bikes were putting frames together—the uh, way you're sort of positioning this—is you know. One out of every X number of bikes is going to have this, regardless.
1: Well, yeah, one or two is nice and straight, and one or two is yeah. at the other end of the spectrum with with, big, with noticeable handling problems uh, that nobody can identify. Yeah, well, well we but in the general market. So I think well, I've been in some, some factories that have bought these GMD contract measurement systems to analyze their own production. Mm-hmm. Um, and one company was spot checking about half of their production bikes and found out that they were commonly twisted the same direction and about the same amount and we go and look at these jigs that they've made and they're very precise huge beefy structures that don't flex they're very they're very well engineered jigs that they weld these things up in but as they start running the weld beads around and whether it's by a human or a robot, um, the heat builds and makes stresses in the metals. And when they, so these stresses are all there, kind of countering each other to a point. And when they unclamp it from its jig, the stresses equalize and the thing warps, you know, it, it, or it, it, it relaxes to where it wants to be, which is kind of less than perfectly straight. This was a lot worse, I think, when weld the, the frames were more tube and sections welded together. Nowadays, uh, with all the aluminum castings and stuff, I think that the uh, modern construction, is they probably bore all those pivots and axes, the steering head bearings, the swing on pivot bearings, etc. All those things are probably bored in one process so that they're on very true and... Where and the modern bikes do tend to be a bit better than they were 15, 20 years ago. And going back to the days of um, some pretty notorious wobbling motorcycles, uh, all of those that we've ever been presented with, they wobble when they're not straight, and when we straighten them, the wobbles go away. So a lot of, a lot of bikes back in the day were, you know, quite un, unstraight. You
0: know are there or were there worse offenders than others when when we're talking about you know eighties, seventies, eighties bikes or sixties bikes of okay. vintage vintage rides?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I don't really want to bag on any manufacturers, sure, but um, there's a whole cottage industry built up around wobbling Yamaha vmaxes. Um, for instance, and the Kawasaki Z1s from back in the day. Pretty notorious for, for tank slappers and head shakes. Um, and there's some modern brands that are notorious for tank slappers and head shake. And when we measure those bikes, they're not straight. And when we straighten them, they quit wobbling.
0: One of the things I was happy to see, and I think you may have even mentioned this to me on the phone, but... When I got to your shop and brought my bike there, I, I think I recall seeing uh, a, a seven uh, early seventies, maybe a seventy-one or seventy-two R seventy-five slash five in your shop. Am I remembering that correctly? Very possible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Is that is that your bike? Was it a a customer's? Um, I, I can't remember the story behind that.
1: Well, it had lots of customer bikes in there. I do have. Uh... 72 slash five.
0: That's right. Of
1: mine. Yeah.
0: And yeah. So just out of curiosity, how long have you had it? And do you get out and ride it, or is it a little bit more of a s- sort of a shop accessory? Uh,
1: it's been sitting where it's at for several years, and I haven't ridden it for a while. Um, I have a pile. I have a pile of parts for re- resurrecting when it. It's just it's like the cobbler's kid has no shoes.
0: Hundred percent. Right? everybody I talk to uh, that is in the repair parts business or motorcycle business that's the exact case all right so let's get let's get down to uh my bike in particular and this will be of note uh to everybody listening to the podcast here was here was the story on my bike so I purchased it from A Facebook ad that had been up for almost four or five months. And the the bike was advertised with a salvage title. Okay. Okay. And I called the owner, talked to him. His, without going into all the details, and again, this was a 77R100S. So this is ostensibly a one-year model uh with the paint and spoke wheels and some other things well spare all the details uh most people listening will know so the owner says to me in so many words well i've had the bike i'm you know one owner i've had the bike i was involved in a quote-unquote low speed accident where somebody hit my left fork and the bike had some damage to the fairing uh the There's a little dent in the tank. The insurance company said, well, look, you know, you need to, these paint, these parts need to be, uh, you need to get new parts, uh, go to your dealer and order it. And of course, you know, this, the closest dealer was in Youngstown, Ohio. This is, I guess, in the early 90s or something. And you couldn't buy those parts anymore. So the bike was quote unquote totaled and the guy told me all he did was buy a new inner fork stanchion not the outer part just the inner fork Uh stanchion the chrome uh, chrome part put it on there and apparently he wrote it as is for a number of years so fast forward uh to 2021 whenever i was i bought it summer 21 22. Uh, i get up there the first thing i notice i'm looking at the front tire and I can see the wear pattern on the tire is all on the right side. Uh huh. And I looked at that and I thought, God, this guy. I mean, what, what, is this like a reverse NASCAR track this guy was riding on all this time? You know, it was just yeah, right hand, yeah, right hand turns. And uh, I didn't say anything or think anything about it. I got on the bike. Now the bike ran, started up fine. It was good. Uh, But I immediately noticed it was pulling to the right. And I look at the tire and thought, "My and, you know, you might have been guilty of this. I certainly wasn't. I know a lot of people listening have been in the past where you've made it this far. You're looking at the bike and you're sort of, you see the problem, but you're almost ignoring it. Right, I mean, I probably knew then and there what was going on, that there were some handling issues or the forks were bent because he told me about the accident, but my brain was just not allowing me to process that information. Conversely, uh, it was a really good price for the motorcycle. He had been trying to sell it for a while, and it was well, 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 well below market value. So I thought, in spite of it all, I'm going to go ahead and, I'm going to take a chance on it. I'm going to buy it. It was a good price. I get home. I go through my sort of refreshing process on the bike. I get to taking it out for the first ride after I've done a lot of things to it. And the pulled new tires, uh, new bearings, uh, rebuilt the front forks, all that kind of stuff, new steering head bearings, all those things on the front end. And I'm thinking, yeah, it might have just been one of those things, you know. Uh-huh. Zero. It was It was none of those things. It was pulling right. really bad to the right. So like I think this uh, example of the customer you had uh, with the newer bike, I was calling friends, calling people saying, hey, what about this? What do you think this is? Oh, it's got to be the bearings. It's this, that, or the other thing. And I'm just thinking, no, you know, I mean, I know I could have Missed something, but uh, I wasn't really doing any complicated sort of repairs and procedures. I'm right. think, I'm thinking about it. One day I'm in the garage, and the bike's all together on one piece, and I just it's sitting next to another uh, R90s, and it just can't it catches my eye. I almost I, I f- could physically see how the the forks were a. Uh, Out of alignment. So I'm looking head-on to the bike. I could see they were uh, going over uh, to the left, if you're looking at it head-on. I got out a uh, just a straight Carpenter's level, started doing some uh, comparison from a a known good bike to that bike, and immediately thought, okay, it's bent. 100% it's bent. I got on the phone. I called you, and... Next thing you know, I'm down there and you're looking at the motorcycle. So, first off, I just told that whole story. Is that, let me just ask you, is that a common sort of refrain or story you'll get from somebody in, in, in my position? I bought this used bike. It's not handling right. I've checked this, I've checked that. I'm at the, my wit's end. Can you look at it?
1: Absolutely. I okay. hear it all the time. Yes. Very common
0: let me just say i get down you're in you're in fairmount georgia and so what we did was and this worked out really nice we sort of scheduled a time a month or two in advance where i would arrive let's say i got there i think on a thursday night came to your shop first thing friday uh you had the bike all day friday And then even part of Saturday, if you needed it, but you said, look, you know, I can probably get this done uh, in a full day. This is the only thing that's going to be scheduled. And uh, sure enough, uh, that's exactly how it worked. Uh, I dropped the bike off Friday morning, came back Saturday, probably around 10 or 11 o'clock. And I was out the door ready to go. So I know you saved the sort of worksheet on my bike. Tell me what you found Uh, when you put it in the jig and started checking it?
1: First off, when somebody wants a one-day appointment like that, and you're coming from afar, uh, we try to make everything as seamless and and smooth as possible. Part of that is suggesting to you, or the the owner of the bike, how to prepare it so that we can get right to what we need to do by removing all the bodywork, the gas tank, the headlight, the exhaust system, and it, that list varies with you know various models, but uh, you, you had all that fairly well prepared, obviously, or it would have taken longer than it did. But um, the first thing we do is set the... Well, as I roll the bike to put it in front of CompuTrack, I'm feeling it. I can feel the fact that this bike, when, when I've got it balanced up where it's balanced in my hands, it looks like it's leaning. When I... Set it when I when I when I move it to the point where it looks like it should. It wants to fall to one side because it's out of alignment. So so I've assessed this before I even got it on a contract. And as badly bent as your bike was, that was kind of that that comes out. I can feel it when I roll it across the shop floor. And then I stabbed the brakes a few times to to kind of check for free play in the fork legs and the brakes and the uh, steering neck bearings. Kind of again assessing things. And we put the bike on stands to, in front of a to measure it. With the front wheel off the ground, I sweep the steering back and forth through its left to right lock, and I'm feeling the steering head bearings for any notchiness. And then I'll get down in front of the bike, grab the axle, the front axle, and, and pull back and forth, checking for free play in the bearings. As I move on through that, I, I uh, check the, I spin each one of the wheels and look at the, brake discs and the rim to see if there's any run out, any wobble on that stuff. Um, and then uh, then I put the targets on it and sit down at CompuTrack and put in your information. Then I measure the bike, and it gives me this report, which I'm looking at a copy of your bike right now. Your bike.
0: I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90s. William and Edward Plam's Video Repair Series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer Two valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed to quickly find what you need. You simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m., and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer Two Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer2Valve are airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Well, glad to have William Plam back with us again. So, I recently purchased a 1994 R80 RT, and as a side note, we'll have a chat I recorded with the seller of that bike in a later program. But back to our topic today, when the RT landed in the garage, I started noticing some similarities and, maybe more importantly, differences between the monolever and paralever bikes, both of which were, at one time, being produced simultaneously. So this conversation, it's not an exhaustive discussion of these models, but we hope an interesting and informative one that covers some of the notable aspects on the last run of the 247 Boxer. Back on the line with William Plamp from Boxer 2 Valve and William. Uh, our topic today uh, sort of torn from my pages of recent happenings. I just bought a 94R80RT. It's a German import Uh, So it's in kilometers, and I'm constantly just kind of trying to guess (laughs) what my mileage is and and whatnot. I know what the calculation is and uh, essentially what that is, but uh, I'm enjoying the motorcycle. Uh, It's a late model RT, so a lot of improvements towards the end of the 247 run on that motorcycle. Really a treat to drive. One thing I noticed, though, and just going over this when I was getting familiar with the bike, there are a lot of design elements and engineering things that are different on a late model RT, we're talking about uh, mid-90s, towards the end of the run, and uh, versus, I should say, a paralever bike, a GS or an R100R of the time. Lots of different parts and things that didn't cross over. And just as a way to sort of set this up, I'm wondering why BMW was still using two sort of different switch gears, shift levers, uh, seat cowls, trunks, and things like that. Do you have any insight as to why they were sort of running two sort of different assembly lines, so to speak? They, they couldn't, uh, they were running two different production parts and lines on these bikes. What's your, what's your thought on that?
2: Well, I think that when the uh, monolever bike was designed Probably sometime in the early 80s, you know, they already were looking to sort of phase that the the uh, old, earlier version, you know, up through 84, out and replace it. Um, I think they already were al- already looking at the, the coming of the K bike, and they I think that they were thinking that the K bike was going to sort of like make the boxer obsolete. And I think that they were not really interested in spending more money than they had to with the new mono lever version. They just kind of fluffed up some important things. But the electronics, uh, a lot of the things like uh, the the way the wires are run, the switches like you mentioned, the, the relays, all that sort of thing. They, they just kind of ran with that because it worked and it was just path of least resistance. That was my kind of observation on
0: it. Yeah, path of least resistance is a good way to put it. And so the monolever versus the twin shock, uh, and let's just talk about maybe the as a way of comparison, really the RS and the RT. So pre, I think it's 85 or, or 86 was the twin shock. Uh, the next generation of that was the mono lever. Um, what were some of the notable changes uh, in the twin shock versus the mono lever, aside from the rear suspension?
2: Okay, so I think it was 80, 84. It was the last of the twin shock. And right. That, and then it was 85. Aside from from the, the rear suspension, which is what... No, denotes the difference is the uh, the wheels, a big deal. They went to tubeless wheels for the first time. And uh, even though it wasn't the first time for cast wheels, it was for tubeless wheels. And, and they also went from the 19-inch front wheel down to an 18-inch. Uh, they increased the, uh, the fork tube diameter from 36 millimeters, I think, to 38.5 millimeters, if I'm not mistaken, the bigger, little bigger fork tubes, integrated fork brace, much larger axle. So the f- whole front end was a lot better. Um, different brakes, uh, brake, driven brake rotors. Uh, they, and uh, so those, a lot of it in the front end was um, a whole different damping mechanism, too, was introduced. Much simpler damping mechanism, a lot less parts to change out when, when working on it. Um, so those were the real notable things. They kept the instruments. They pretty much kept the switches, all the electronics, more or less. With minor details, were kept the same. Um, that was the, those, the, the whole front end. Then the tank is a little bit smaller. Um, they relocated the um, the electronics in such a way that they're on the sort of right side of the frame. They got rid of all the stuff that used to be in the headlight. And they, they put it underneath on the right side of the frame. So the, the tank is, is much more asymmetrical than the earlier tanks. Uh, there's a lot less capacity on the right-hand side. So keep that in mind when you're using your reserve that you, you don't have. I always like when, when I go, um, you know, it depends on how your mind works, but on the right-hand reserve, you don't have much fuel in there. You've got a lot more left-hand reserve. So you want to use up the big big reserve uh Part or about the little one first, you know. Um, but you, just so you know, there, there's that big difference. And of course, the seat changed. Um, they put a much flatter, arguably more comfortable seat on there, and then um, some minor changes to the uh, subframe that allowed a more sporty, more modern looking uh, rear seat cowl and got a lot more uh, storage in, in there as a result. So you got a, a nice big tool tray in the underneath where you sit and one in the back. So there were some pretty significant little upgrades in that on the model lever. Um, I think I touched on most of them there.
0: Yeah, and one thing uh, I noticed uh, is uh, now all, I think all these bikes going forward from 85 on, uh, the RT or the RS, all of them were going to have dual disc setups. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, William, you, you could fore or aft, on the fork leg placement for the brake caliper. Some models had it in the front, in front of the uh, caliper, caliper, and some were behind it. And I think it's, you can even swap those. Uh, I don't know exactly. I think I just read this anecdotally somewhere, but am I correct in saying on some models, it was fore and some it was aft?
2: I think on the mono lever bikes that we're talking about, mm-hmm you know, the non-parallel I think they were all in front of the caliper. Okay. I believe, yeah. But there was one model that had a single disc, and that was the R65, and in Europe, the R45. Okay. Um, yeah, they had a, a single disc, um, non-ventilated, as I recall, and it was... Um, the way they got the extra stopping power was that they had a 48-millimeter caliper, 48-millimeter piston, and the... Um, the uh, dual disc had two 38 millimeter calipers. So. Okay. Yeah, so there there was that, but uh, it's pretty rare, okay. and uh, you don't. They didn't bring many of those into the U.S., but you you will see single disc bikes all, uh, okay. around the world. Okay.
0: All right. Fair enough. Uh, and yeah, again, I'm thinking more. Yeah, you're introducing a 65 or an R45 in there, and uh, but when we're talking just about basically what was available in the United States at the at that time. Uh, aside from the R65, the Monolever RS and RT were really the more ubiquitous bikes uh, later on in that model run. One thing I noticed on, on this uh, RT, which was really nice, uh, was the battery covers had a small screw at the bottom, uh, which helped keep the battery cover on.
2: Yeah, that is a cool part. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, so many of us are used to the Sort of bungee cords and uh, rubber bands and things between the two, and fumbling with that from time to time, or you know whatever it is, uh, this seemed to be finally a little bit more of a practical solution where you could uh, a- actually tighten the battery cover <laughs> to the side of the frame.
2: Yeah, that's that's true, and I also kind of thought that the uh, the way that the, uh, the, the the way the battery mounts in the battery holdout system worked pretty
0: well. Yeah, it it does. Very much so. Uh, Another neat thing with these monolever bikes, uh, the RS and the RT here, and and this might be applicable to the other two we talked about. It it just so happens I had purchased one of those longer tool trays with the sort of uh, extended bottom in it. It kind of looks like a long hook that goes between the battery uh, and the fender, and I had purchased that thinking I could use it on my GS, on the R80 GS, you know, the first uh, first generation. I thought, okay, yeah, this would be great. It should, it should fit in there. I didn't know, uh, I, and I bought that, and it didn't, but it t- turns out about a month later, I ended up buying this RT, and it was a perfect uh, application and fit, and that's what it was designed for, and that's a neat little sort of uh, optional piece that you can cram some extra stuff down in there.
2: Yeah, that's a really cool, cool part. They uh, had the the old uh, 19 amp hour batteries, the smaller battery that's compatible with that, and so yeah, you get that a lot of extra room. And then uh, at a certain point in time, they went to um, they they were consistently having battery problems back in those days, or they they thought they were, and they um, they decided to put the bigger 30 amp hour battery in, and then they cut that thing off but some of the first ones that came through you could tell that somebody like like literally hacked that (laughs) that piece that goes down behind the battery off and then they put a little plastic sort of tray in so to cover the hole that they've made essentially they they repurposed it um interesting it was a period of time that we saw those come through like that
0: interesting okay and we were talking about uh the switch gear uh on the mono levers uh i i don't know i've kind of prefer i think most people do uh i've not run a formal poll on this but the k-bike paralever switch gear with the uh the way the turn signals are constructed uh, that seems a little bit more intuitive to me than what they were still using on the mono lever uh of that era especially with the with the turn signal Uh, which do you prefer if 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 any
2: you know it, that, that's been like a, a big topic of conversation forever, you know. And if you read some of the old magazines from the, yeah. back in the '80s and all that, they the, people just really couldn't get their heads wrapped around those, those new switches, you know. Um, it, and also the, the horn button, rather counterintuitive to have to lift up with your left thumb, you know. To, that's right. And so those there were some things. So I mean. What do I prefer? You know, at this point, at, at at back in the day, I probably really liked that because I was I was like tuned into it. But nowadays, where I ride a lot of different motorcycles um, and mix it up with different brands, even and they, I like the old the old style with the with the toggle switch on the left hand side. You know, do all my turn signal work with my left hand. It's like kind of more of an industry standard, I think. Yes, but if you but if you just are riding this one bike and you and you know and you're that's your, your bike. So that, I think that the, the new, that, that, uh, by now the old style, but at the time the new style with the left and right turn. So it's very intuitive if you're, if you're kind of keyed into it after you've been riding the same bike for a while.
0: I agree. I agree. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the K 75 in another episode. And, uh, that had shared that same, uh, sort of setup uh, with the switch gear and turn signals. Uh, you know, what's funny about this, I'm sure this has happened to you, uh, happens to you, I should say, and other folks out there who may have more than one bike in the garage. I know this happens to me every time. You know, I've got a couple uh, twin shocks from the mid 70s. Now I've got the R80GS and now the RT. So you get on the bike, you hadn't ridden it in a while and whatever the last motorcycle you, you rode, whether it was the day before or maybe earlier in the day or whatever, your sort of muscle memory is tuned into those particular sets of switch gears and handlebar controls and i'm always constantly you know having to get on it and think oh okay i forgot here's where the switch is i got to remember this and i'll inadvertently hit something wrong accidentally hit a horn or something like that um just because i've got sort of three different switch gear setups i have to accom- my brain has to accommodate for each time i get on
2: Right, yeah, I can identify with
0: that. <laughs> um, a couple other things I thought, and we, you mentioned a lot of these, but uh, a few things uh, I think that bear mentioning. Uh, you, uh, one thing I thought was neat on these mono levers was they had sort of a snap fit uh, with rubber bushings and a circlip uh, that attached the tank to the frame right in front of the seat. So gone. Uh, Were the days of those uh, knurled plastic nuts uh, that you would screw and unscrew. In this case, the tank just popped on. It had some nice rubber bushings in the holes, and uh, those little uh, clip pins, like you'd use, also maybe on on a seat, uh, on a seat uh, swivel, uh, help keep the uh, tank in place. The shift lever uh, was a lot different too. Uh, it was a t- if I'm remembering correctly William I think it was kind of attached and part of the foot peg is that right?
2: Yeah, it is yeah and it had it, I, it, uh, they, the foot pegs changed uh, quite a bit. The, your feet are more it's, uh, they're more uh, uh, a mirror image of each other you look straight down the pegs are pretty much straight across from each other which was also kind of a new a new thing um, with the monolever.
0: Yeah, I noticed oh,
2: that. Look down; you always have the, the staggered foot pegs.
0: Oh, okay. So they're evenly placed uh, on this. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. In- interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Huh. yeah, I haven't. I haven't noticed that. I'll, next time I'm on it, you kind of have to stand up to to observe that. I would suppose that's something I yeah. didn't see.
2: Look at how they're attached. They're actually uh, welded welded on to the frame instead of uh, going yeah. Around. Uh, it's a totally different setup.
0: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, they're diff- exactly different mounting points uh, for the rear frame and the shock. Uh, and But back to the shift lever, um, BMW experimented with a lot of different ways to sort of try to get the inherent clunkiness out of that transmission. Uh, those transmissions were never uh, quite as smooth, uh, let me put it this way, they never felt like a, maybe a... What a lot of people were used to back then would be like a Japanese transmission, a Honda, Suzuki, Kawasaki, or whatever. It was real light shifting feel and just sort of snapped right into place. The airhead transmissions could be a little bit clunky. I did notice, though, with this particular shift lever setup and this transmission, it's probably one of the smoother shifting setups of the uh, airhead bikes I've got in my garage. Oh,
2: yeah, that would make sense, because they did make a change to the shift mechanism. Um, and since you bike such a late one, it for sure has that new shift, me- shift mechanism in there. And that was a that was introduced somewhere, I don't know the exact date, I want to say around 86, 87, sometime a couple of years after the monolever, lever, they, they came out with this new upgraded shift uh, mechanism, and it's retrofittable to all five-speeds.
0: Yeah, it makes a big difference. There, there's no two ways about it. And if you're, uh, if someone out there is considering uh, a transmission rebuild, uh, or you know you've got the need for it, you decided uh, something's finally fallen apart in there, and you've got to send it off, or you're doing it yourself. That's a, is a great, great up uh, update upgrade to do uh, on your transmission. So, William, sort of wrapping this. Um, topic up here the the mono lever rs and rt versus the paralever uh paralever bikes of the time were there just in your memory um what was more popular among riders uh was the mono rs and rt a more popular bike uh than the than the gs or the r100r i have to imagine the GS really started, that's when sales picked up, and that really started becoming the flagship sort of model offering for BMW uh, when it really took hold. But were the monolever bikes just as, as popular still back then?
2: They, they, they were popular, but they were in pretty short supply. Hmm. Um, I don't. We didn't get very many of those bikes, but, you know, and the numbers were small. They didn't have... They just weren't bringing very many of them into the country. So um, they were putting the emphasis on the K-bikes and on the on the GS model, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's fair to say. And uh, again, this is sort of anecdotal. Uh, a lot of people will say who own these bikes, who own a mono RS or an RT, especially the later model, get into the early 90s, mid-90s, that they're probably... Uh, could be arguably uh, really the, the pinnacle uh, of the airhead design in the sense that, you know, with the other two, especially the GS, you've got some drive shaft issues uh, that you're going to have to consider, uh, paralever bushings and things uh, on the rear drive to consider. With the mono, uh, probably a little bit more of a stable, uh rear end drive system all that sort of stuff yet you're still getting the refinement uh and the later design on all the uh, engine and other component parts i've talked to a lot of people who own a mono rs or an rt and say but you know of all the airheads i've owned this is my favorite might not be as powerful uh and have as much horsepower or pickup as some of the earlier rs's 77 or 78 twin shocks uh but what you lack maybe in Raw sort of horsepower feel or torque that gets made up uh, with better suspension handling and just overall rider experience. what's What's your thought on that?
2: I totally agree. It's been my I, I have a, a one for myself that I keep in Germany um, and I have one here, in North Carolina, a monolever, and those are my favorite bikes to ride because they're just they I feel they're very reliable. And uh, everything works. It's like we just said before, they really, they they, more or less perfected it. Without changing anything, they still kept a lot of the old components, but it just just really polished. It's like a nice way to end a chapter of that series bike. And the other thing that I think we forgot to mention is how awesome the center stand is on that bike. Oh, yeah. It's so easy. If you ever had an 81 through 84 and tried to put the bike on the center stand, you know, it's like you you can injure yourself doing it so
0: hard <laughs> they,
2: and they made it um really nice you know people didn't like the spring loaded side stand so much but you know you can kind of get used to that but that center stand is awesome it, you can with no almost no effort put the bike up on the center
0: stand yeah you know i having never oh, i've read that where that uh, particular era that uh, 3 or 4 year era was difficult um and Compare and I yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it, compared to the twin shocks I have that RT does uh f- kind of fall onto the center stand a lot easier. Um but still though, uh this this topic's come up a lot and we could debate it uh probably in its own segment. But the whole side stand situation, I mean the the guy I bought the bike from, I think he had the stock side stand on there. Then he tried welding something on the stand so it was easier for him, for his foot to access it and reach it and maybe keep it down when he was trying to get it down. And then he finally just said to hell with that and put on another side stand that's mounted uh, near the rear foot peg. And I'm not so sure that's really a better design either. Uh, Apparently, the brown side stand doesn't fit that era of bike. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, that's one thing that was still sort of perplexing riders uh, uh, all the way to the end of the run there was just the the side stand. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say about it other than, you know, if you've got one of these bikes, really, you just have to figure out what works best. For you and go from there having tried a few different options and things uh i think with the especially with the the later model bikes the post uh, 81 I, i'm fine with the spring-loaded side stand you just have to be you have to remember about it so anyway um all right as always william a pleasure visiting with you uh these uh these mono lever uh bikes i think If you haven't owned one, it's worth taking a look into. And as always, if you own one of these, and like I've done recently, done a little refurbishing uh, and freshening up on it, Boxer 2 valve, all the parts and things you're going to need for your bike. So, William, pleasure visiting with you. Catch up with you next time, buddy.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot, Darren. You take care, buddy.
0: Great chat with William. Glad to have him back again with us. We've got plenty more with him in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. Now back to our final segment with Kent Sonier.
1: Your bike. Well let me let me say this. We draw the line, we don't chase 0.2 of a degree or less on most applications. If somebody's going to the Bonneville Salt Flats, 0.2 can be a problem. Sure. But then General riding and all, Point two is not usually, and that's 0.2 of a degree of twist between the steering head and the back wheel. Um, so your bike measured 1.7 degrees. Wow. Uh, and it was twisted bottom of the steering head to the right from the rider's perspective. When you're sitting on the bike, yep. the steering neck was twisted bottom to the right, 1.7 degrees. That put your front wheel 30 millimeters out of wheel track with the back wheel. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and then as we go down through the measurement, um, your, uh, your the back wheel versus the swing arm pivot, when we spin the wheel and it doesn't have any run out to it, when we put the targets on it, the contract defines that plane. If, if the back wheel leans relative to the swing arm pivot, we know that it's because the swing arm is twisted. Yours was 0.1 degree. So it's very, very minor and, and not a problem by itself, but the, the main frame had a big twist in it. Once we've assessed, and then there's a whole page of information that's just kind of, the the worst part of yours was the twist in the frame between the neck and the swing on pivot. Everything else was relatively minor. When we put the bike, then, so then we take the front end off the bike. The front end assembly, meaning the triple clamps, the fork legs, and the front wheel goes through its own, assessment and correction process to make it very parallel make the two legs parallel to each other in the process we spin each of the pork tubes in v-blocks with a dial indicator Um, just to to explain that to your listeners um, if you put a a shaft you lay a shaft with a a v-shaped cradle at the opposite ends of the shaft when you rotate it if the shaft is straight it doesn't wobble if it does wobble It ain't straight. And then so we find where the the bend is and put a dial indicator on it, and we can read it down to less than a thousandth of an inch. Um, We draw the line at three thousandths of an inch. And uh, so um, we we, we go through the process to prove that the fork tubes are straight, and then we assemble the front end and make sure that two fork legs are very parallel, um, and then once that's all pinched up and square and true we set it aside and then we go to the, the jig where the the rest of the bike is put in the jig typically most motorcycles we do that with the engine in place the swing arm and rear wheel in place so the bike is positioned in our frame jig on the swing arm pivots and then we put a, a pointers through the through the neck of the frame on, on uh, basically it's a it's a, a shaft with pointed ends on cones that we center up in the steering neck um, and that should be all square to the swing-on pivot on a bike that's got 1. 1. 1.7 degrees of twist in it. Um, that's
0: that's huge. Yeah, so, let me jump so, in there and, and, and just ask you, so when you got that initial reading, you probably thought to yourself, well, how in the hell was somebody riding this motorcycle?
1: Well, I mean, we yeah, uh, <laughs> well, what's when, when, we, when you ride a motorcycle that's got a one-degree twist in it, and people do ride those in for our services, yeah. they got a one twist in them, you can't take your hands off the bars because uh-huh. that bike will dart for the ditch or cross the center line relatively immediately. Yep. So you learn. And, and, and when you're riding that bike straight down the road, even with three-tenths of a degree of twist in the frame, if you let go of the handlebars, it might track straight for a moment, but then you sense... And a lot of times riders sense this without realizing it and they'll subconsciously stick a leg out or lean their torso opposite the way it's pulling to hold the bike on course. Yep. Uh, and, and when I mention that to them, they go, going, nah, I don't do that. But then the next time I talk to them, they're like, you know what? I do have to lean. I didn't realize I was doing that. 100%. Yep. Yep. Very subconscious reaction to the pulling moment. Um, so that's just that's an indicator if a bike if you have to, if your bike is pulling it's not straight.
0: No, and I and I can remember uh, again pre repair, I when I would take my hands off the handlebars, yes, it was going hard to the right, and my the counter move and that I did not put a lot of miles on the bike in this condition, but uh, as you say, then my counter move was I would just move my rear end sort of my. I put my whole right cheek on the seat with the left one off and you know I was trying to yeah. just get it straight and I knew yep. then something was was not right it wasn't just a steering head bearing it wasn't just a bent fork stanchion it yeah. wasn't it wasn't the wheel bearings because you know not that I've dealt with a bent fork stanchion before but the, I mean there's other things I have and I knew a little bit from experience locked-up steering head bearings, you'll drift a little bit more. Uh, or if you've got notch in your steering head bearings, anecdotally speaking, at least I noticed this on a bike that I had that was pretty bad, it wasn't that it was yeah. pulling, it was drifting, and I couldn't keep a straight line one way or the other. Uh, so so I, I, I get it there. So, okay, so here's what I want to – go ahead. If i
1: very quickly on the steering head bearings, yeah. when – when you develop that notchiness, first first thing, that happens because the bike's been ridden with the steering head a little bit loose, room for it to hammer a dent where each one of the rollers or balls is laying. So it, it beats a dent and under, the, under the bearings that are on that side of the load. So now it kind of locks into that dent. And that gets worse when you realize there's some free play in this thing and you tighten it up. Now it really pinches those the, the balls down into the races where the, 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 dents are. So when you're riding down the road, 35 miles an hour, you don't have to be going fast. Um, the, as, as you're riding down the road, you make countless tiny little corrections to keep your balance subconsciously. You don't even realize you're doing it. When those dents happen, the bike locks in and now, instead of making a very slight correction with minimal amount of pressure, you got to push a little bit harder. And, and when it pops out of that dent, you get this jerky corrective motion. Um, and so that's that's an aggravating thing, and, and that may be what you're alluding to as a drift. When it locks mm-hmm. in, it, it's kind of going the direction it's pointed. And when you want to make a little correction, you've got to overcome that detent that that it has. So... And we uh, we do a lot of bearing replacement. Yeah. So I, I'm
0: sorry. No, we're, that we're, no. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because the whole idea here is we want to give folks an idea of what sort of symptoms they may be experiencing, where to start troubleshooting, and you know when is it a good time to give uh, Kent a call uh, if you've got some more serious issues. So. Back to the R100S. So I remember you telling me uh, going, we were going over the repair process and where it could or couldn't go, uh, meaning, you know, well, I may have to do this. We may have to do that. I recall you telling me, you know, depending on how bad the damage is, we may actually have to heat up the uh, down tube. Uh, till it gets yep. red hot and then go back and you know we'll repaint that as part of the process so um, in in this particular case on my motorcycle it was pretty bad as we've been discussing and so that repair uh, really entailed what so that was where you had to get that down tube super hot and and bend it uh, so just tell me about the process of actually getting that uh frame to the point where you can get it in the jig and get it straightened out
1: okay well uh, again the exhaust system is off the seat the tank most of the front end uh headlights and all that stuff and then we set the bike in the jig and position it on the swing arm pivots and uh and then once we get it all set in the jig and we build the jig around it it's the jig's very adjustable to fit lots of different shapes and kinds of motorcycles and uh, then we'll take the uh, we use hydraulic Porter powers, and and standoffs, screw thread standoffs. We'll put a brace in place to push against. So say the the yours was twisted bottom to the right. So so we we put a put a brace off at the top of the steering head, on the right side. Then we go to the, the I'm sorry on the on the left side at the top, and then. Um, Go, go lower down on the neck actually we put a big mandrel through the steering neck so that we're not pushing on the frame we're pushing through this big steel mandrel that's that's adapted into the bearing pockets of the frame and there's a long pointer through this thing so but with the jig has got its uh, um, gauge lines on it so I can see where it's at relative to being square to the swing rope and we'll come in with the porta powers and kind of wind it up, put some pressure on it, push that pointer. Yours was off to the right, so we'll push it past the center line, off to the left, the ways, and then cut the power loose and let it let it settle where it wants to. And if it goes right back where we started, then we'll wind it up and push it a bit farther and relax it. And if it, if it if we're not getting much out of it, we're having to push too hard in that process, that's when we'll 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 wind it up off the left side of the strike plate and get the torch out and and look at where the things need to flex and and you say super hot yeah it's all relative we heat a steel frame we heat it to a dull red glow
0: okay not
1: not bright red you know just I mean, we're very conscious of the temperature that we heat it to, and we have controls for doing aluminum as well. Not nearly as hot as steel has to be,
0: sure. Because you but, don't want to do any structural damage uh, to the actual yeah. metal itself. Exactly. Yeah. Yes.
1: Right. We don't want to. We don't want to melt it into a puddle. You know, <laughs> no. and, uh, so, so there's a point where the the memory, um loses its. I mean, the the metal loses its memory, and and so what we're looking for is to we push this thing off to the, the the direction it needs to go, farther than center, heat it up, take the pressure away, and let it relax back. And what we're looking for is to to fall back on center. So uh, that's the that's our process, you know. So um, we have to take the the paint or whatever finishes on the frame. Um, it's very unfortunate when we have to do this on powder-coated frames, and that's a whole other deal. The yep. temperature, temperature of powder-coat ovens can uh, it certainly affect, I've seen it affect aluminum frames um, and have you know have data in history on had an aluminum frame that was nice and straight when it came out of the jig. They took it away and powder-coated it and called me back and said, hey, this thing's wobbling. It was a race, a superbike, race bike. And uh, so we go through the basics and say, like, well, let's put it back in front of track and check. And the frame had warped in the powder coat oven. Steel takes a lot more temperature than aluminum does to get it to change its shape. So, uh, but I've seen it where aluminum, uh, you know, powder coat ovens, they heat aluminum to uh, 400 degrees. And when we relax aluminum frames, we heat them to 400 degrees. So I suggest to people when you're building a custom bike, let's get it nice and straight, and then you paint it. Don't heat, don't put it in the oven because that relaxes all these stresses and it, it causes them to
0: unwind.
1: So anyway, and then on that beautiful super bike that had been freshly powder coated, in order to straighten it, I had to burn the powder coat off the frame to,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to heat. Fr- yeah, so it, it, you know then then they put spray paint on it and went racing. You know, so
0: well. Let me just say. Um... There was maybe about a 12-inch section on the front <clears throat> right down tube uh, on the yep. on, on my bike, uh, yep. and the the paint you, you covered it back up. It's about as flawless as one can expect, aside from taking it to you know a shop and having it done professionally. You it, it's one of those things you could walk by the bike, never tell that's happened. Or if I told you, hey, that's been repainted there, you might have to look at it and put your readers on or or get a uh, a flashlight to look at it and say, oh, okay, I see it now. So you guys did a great job with that. Obviously, it's something uh, you're used to doing in the shop. You found the right color black, blended it in there uh, just right uh, for a seamless paint repair.
1: On that note, another thing I have learned to do is I tell people, about this process, when when our initial conversations about fixing their chassis, I will say I may have to use heat. If I do have to use heat, note this: I do not do finished paint work Okay, I, I will I will find the closest primer I can to get it where it looks fine at 100 miles an hour. But I don't do finished paint.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to. I don't want to give anybody in that impression. But what I will say for a 1977 R100S. Rider-quality bike, I didn't have to do anything. Um, so sure. you and, did did and a great job.
1: Any paint that we do is out of a rattle can. We
0: don't have a spray gun or anything like that. Yeah. So we do a rattle can. Yeah, let's not build anybody's expectations up here is what you're saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was uh, ostensibly the repair needed for that bike. So you got the frame up to a dull red glow, the down tube. Uh, and I, I, I rem- I've got some pictures of this, and I'll try to get these up on a website at some point. I don't know if I'll have the photos up uh, that you provided to me, which was nice. It was neat to see it in the jig. Uh, but yeah. as, uh, essentially, that was the one repair that was needed?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, When you rock a bike straight down the road, any motorcycle, for it to work right, if you imagine the center line of the back wheel— like a sheet of glass that has no thickness just a flat plane and you project that through the bike kind of in your mind the steering neck axis the steering bearing axis should be on that plane and you can have you can have a, a 0.2 degree twist in the steering neck of the frame relative to the swing arm pivot say bottom to the left yeah. and then the swing arm and the back wheel could be leaning 0.2 of a degree top to the left those add up. Now you've got almost a half a degree of twist front to back, and that's a bike that's going to um, do something. It might pull. It might wear the tires unevenly. It might do head shakes on deceleration. It might do wobbles and on high-speed runs when you're on the gas hard in fourth gear. It may start wobbling because of you know the, the twist between the steering neck. Ultimately, the front wheel to the back wheel should all be on one plane, when you're rolling straight. So if there's any twist in any of those components, and it can be all within sort of tolerance specs, meaning a couple of tenths of a degree one way and, and, and the other end of the bike a couple of tenths in the other way, and those add up, and, and you've got a significantly crooked motorcycle. And then, and then you throw in the variables of rear wheel aiming by chain adjustment, a twist in the triple clamps, um, one way or the other. And, and yeah, and that's a bike that will just misbehave. And, you know, I'm not, not bagging on any general repair shop, but they don't have a way to identify that. No, no, no. Yeah. So that's where we come in and we do a lot of work for other professionals, people, pro race teams, and they've got all kinds of programs where they can look at wheel loading and spring loading and and um, all of their data as far as geometry and suspension stuff. And they've got some pretty fancy programs that they use that all um, are based on that company measures an example motorcycle or five of them. And then they, they assume that all those bikes are like that. And, and there's variables, you know, so... When we measure a bike, we're not making any assumptions. We're sure. measuring what's in front of CompuTrack. And um, so those race teams will send us their race bikes to quantify them so that when they use these programs, they're putting in known values that we've established instead of what the manufacturer of that equipment, <laughs> that program, uh, presumes all the bikes are supposed to be.
0: So i want to... I want to go with the questioning line of questioning this way now. So, in again, my repair was from a uh, sort of sideways collision on the front forks, apparently. Yep. Um, yep. There are all kinds of crashes and ways frames and front ends and swing arms uh, can get bent up. Uh, aside, yep. is there a frame, Kent, that uh, cannot be repaired?
1: Well, there are some designs that we cannot put in our jig. If if it was the only, if if it was worth it, it could be done. Uh, for I mean, you want me to name a specific motorcycle? Sure, why not? Okay.
0: okay.
1: Well, uh GL1800s. They 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 have a reputation for um a little bit of instabilities uh, in certain situations, certain models. I, they won't fit in my jig. <laughs> they're just too bloody big yeah. to put in my, okay, uh, so they're out. Um, I've done some of the smaller GLs, the older ones, 1,000s,
0: 1,200s. Gold, and we're uh, talking about gold wings. Uh, yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. I cannot do a GL 1,800. Um, I can measure it with CompryTrack and tell you if it's, well aligned or not, if it wobbles, it's not well aligned. That I can identify whether it's the frame or the swing arm or the front end. Um, another one that we cannot put in the jig as normal is the uh, the XB series Buells hmm. uh, X- XB9s, XB12s, and mainly there because the the jig is designed to position the bike on the swing arm pivot so that everything can be trued. be square and perpendicular to the swing arm pivot. Uh, the XB Series Buells, the the primary case of the the engine and transmission covers the swing arm pivot on the left side. Oh. So I don't have a way to position the bike and hold it in the jig. Yep. There's some others too. There's some shaft drive bikes that don't have good access swing arm pivots. So so uh, there are some bikes that it's impractical. But for the most part, if, it's, if I can see the swing or pivot on both sides, we can figure out a way to hold it in the jig.
0: Okay. Um, what about – so let me ask you this then. What about a, a bike for a a, head, a real bad head-on collision? That's going to have the steering head uh, bent and collapsed. And let, and let me just say this. on the th- This is an interesting note here. On the airhead frame, and you may recall this, uh, where the steering head bearings located, there are two tabs on either side, welded gusset welds, I guess, gusset pieces, metal gusset pieces, and when I looked yep. at the, I, that was one of the things I think maybe you or somebody else had said. Well, look at those. Are they compromised? Are they bent? Uh, just physically, can you look at them and see? uh and which on this model bike you know some guys will know that's kind of where maybe the vin number stamped or there's a vin plate stamped up up around that area uh and i i didn't notice that but back to my question um a head-on collision is going to have a whole different sort of impact and damage sequence and things you have to look at to it Uh, i guess what i'm saying is if the structural integrity of the frame and the metal is still good you can bend it back uh and and get it straight what have you ever have you ever had to where you've had a uh, frame like a gusset was bent and you had to replace it or you had to do some welding or are you just doing basic realignment no welds no sort of metal repairs
1: shoot we I have a very nice Miller 250 SynchroWave TIG welder, and I use it a lot.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, and
1: anywhere from—I don't do a lot of it, um, but we have like you get a a, a Ducati 900 with the trellis frame, uh, and and the, when the when the crash happens, it breaks the steering stop off, and the fork tube dents. The, the frame at the front by the steering head, it actually collapses the tube. We've taken those and cut them out with a sawzall and take a, a, a donor piece of tubing that fits and graft it into place. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, when you, when you have a head-on collision and it basically – it essentially shortens the wheelbase. <laughs> Very right?
0: much so. Yes.
1: Right. It pushes the it pushes the front axle, it bends the forks and pushes the frame and we get the call, yeah, I got this crash and I'm putting new forks on it and my front wheel's rubbing the the chin bearing of the or my front wheel's touching the cylinder head or
0: something. <laughs> yeah.
1: It wasn't just bent forks, the frame is bent, we call that short. And so it shortened the wheelbase, steepened the rake angle, shortened the trail. And it's a disaster to ride a bike like that. It, it, you can ride them, but you, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing.
0: Good grief. But
1: one, of the, one of the values that we get from the track measurement in the, uh, in the geometry information, at a given front ride height, at a, front, at a set length of fork height, the front axle should be a certain distance from the swing on pivot on a given family of bikes. Right, a given model of bikes, it's it's X distance of on on your bike, the swing-arm pivot to the front axle at the ride height that you had the forks at was set at it was, uh, 1,091.8 millimeters right off the measurement from your bike. So if you had run that into a, the back of a parked car and it was 1,000 uh, a, a millimeters and it, it was 90 millimeters short, we can go in there and put a mandrel in the neck of the frame and apply pressure to pull that out to get the front axle the right distance from the swingarm pivot. That restores the rake angle and uh, the trail and the geometry, et cetera. In the process, we take the twist and lateral offsets out of it, so you come out of the jig with a a bike that may well be straighter than it was before you crashed it.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I think, yeah, that was definitely the case with me. And I I know you've asked me this a, a couple of times, and I'll just say, Kent, it was a, a night and day difference uh, after you did that repair. So it was well worth the time and, uh, and effort for me to go down there. And I think the important thing, one thing I want to underscore here is uh, for old old airheads like uh, we deal with here on this program, 1970 to 95, or older bikes or you know newer bikes, whatever it is, but specifically for this range, type and style we're talking about sometimes you'll see a deal you'll see a bike that was for sale like i did with the salvage title or the guy it it was crashed and you know it's sitting in somebody's backyard somewhere like that for 10 or 15 years and they they never did anything to it what i want to underscore here is that's not necessarily a death nail to that motorcycle doesn't have to be parted out Uh, You don't have to pull the motor and uh, start taking parts off it. It can be repaired. And I think that's uh, one thing I want to remind folks and and just bring to everybody's attention because I've heard uh, on forums and people talking, "Ah, I crashed the bike and the insurance company totaled it, and I'm just going to take it uh, and part it out and get rid of it because the forks were bent or this, this or that was done. This is just a reminder. Yep. Hey, there is a service out there to get this bike back to where it was, maybe even better than it was when new.
1: Yep, that's right. We do a lot of it. Uh,
0: again, uh, GMD CompuTrack, and is it is it still CompuTrack Atlanta? Am I remembering? Is that on the website, or just you can? Yes.
1: Well, if you just go to GMD CompuTrack, you'll it'll it'll steer you to us. Also,
0: okay. So. And uh, as I mentioned, Fairmount. Georgia is the location. I guess that's a little. It's a little bit, uh, maybe an hour or so west of Atlanta, if my my memory's uh, correct. And it was I, it, it was a neat little town. I remember the shop was on the corner of the court square. You've got a sort of yep. o- open uh, floor plan in the shop with old wood paneling. You go in there, it smells like tires and. You know, I uh-huh. mean, it's what a motor, when I walked in there, Ken, I was like, I really felt at home. I was like, yeah, this is what a motorcycle yeah. shop should look like.
1: Yeah. We're not glass and chrome like you're big time dealers. That's what, <laughs> we're old time motorcycle shop.
0: No. Yeah. All right, Ken. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking some time uh, to visit with us today and go through that again. If you've got a bike that you've crashed or you find one that has some crash damage, don't send it out to pasture. There's, there's hope for it, especially if you've uh, got a bent frame and you're the, you're the one to call to get it done. So I appreciate all you've done uh, for me, Kent. Keep it up.
1: Cool. Well, thank you very
0: much. Hope you enjoyed our chat with Kent this week. Uh, as I told him in a recent correspondence, I have a feeling some of you out there may be reassessing any handling issues after hearing this program. And while we wish nothing of the sort of the issues and damages I had to tackle, it sure is reassuring to know, Kent is out there to make those repairs correctly. Thanks for being with us again. Until next time, so long everybody. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.